listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. It's great to be with you today, wherever you're watching. We have a word uh, that I'm about to bring. It's part of a series that we have two more weeks left, including so this week and the next week it culminates uh, at Pentecost. And this series is called Rebuilding Hope. We are looking at the ways in which God wants us to be a hopeful people, defined by hope at this moment when there's so much chaos and disruption in the world. And today's story, which we're about to read, actually is about dreams. And dreams are a really interesting thing. Dreams is an interchangeable word often used for hope. When people talk about something they hope for, they'll often say, it's my dream. And what we find in this story is actually God invading a dream. So it's a really rich story we're about to engage in. It comes from the beginning book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We've been in the book of Genesis a lot during this series, but we're jumping ahead and we're going to encounter a character called Jacob. And we're going to go to Genesis 28 verses 10 is where we're going to start, or verse 10. Jacob left Bathsheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking out one of the stones there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. Now, I must admit, as a young boy in church, a lot of this story's meaning was lost for me because I just could not get past why someone would use a stone for sleep. I used to sit up the back of church just thinking, just use the ground, man. Like, use your jacket, use something. I couldn't work out a stone. But there is a reason for the stone we'll get to, which my childish self could not realize. So taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with his top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, if you've been following this series, you'll notice a lot of the common themes that we've experienced, this sort of image language that the Bible uses. We have the heavens. And as he has gone to sleep, there is this heavenly dimension, the imprint of God's will, which hovers above us. Hope hovers above us in the heavens. And we see that here. We have the ground. Jacob is laying on the ground. He uses part of the ground to actually be his pillow, a thing called a stone. And then we have this interaction between heaven and earth. We see that there are angels ascending, but also descending. This isn't just about going up to escape the earth, to be in the heavenly imprint. The angels are also coming down. The messengers of God are at work. Unbeknownst to the waking eye, what Jacob is given insight into here, that there is this move of God that is happening. God is working behind the scenes where we can't see to actually bring heaven and earth together. But we also have the other component. We have the heavens, we have the earth, but we also have the human. And Jacob at this point is the human in between these two things. There above it, the ladder, stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this land. 
I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Again, lots of the themes that we've been exploring in this series. The earth, humans being like the earth, this mission that is given to Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation to go out and spread out and multiply in the world. Continuing. When Jacob woke, awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. I just want to repeat that line. Surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. That is a little phrase that has resonance and forces us to ask the question, where has God been around and present that I've not been aware of? Continuing. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He's in an in-between place. We'll be talking about gray zones, which is that liminal in-between space between where you were and where you're going. He is on this journey. He recognizes that God was in this gray zone and he did not understand or see him or, or, or sense his presence there. But having his perspective changed by this vision of heaven that encounters in his dream, as God invades his dream, he realizes that actually what just seemed like a bit of ground to lay on actually is the gate of heaven. The text goes on. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel. Now, Jacob, as we meet him at this place, to fill in some of the story that goes before this, he has an identity and his identity is captured in his name. His name is given. And Jacob means trickster or twisted. And this is a name given by his family. It's an identity that is foisted upon him. And what we'll find later on, God will change this identity. But at this point, this identity, in a sense, controls him. Now, Jacob lives and has grown up in a family dynamic which charitably could be labeled dysfunctional. He lives in continual comparison with his brother, the alpha male Esau, who hunts and engages daily in the most manly of manly activities. Whereas the text tells us that Jacob hangs around the camp with the women cooking. Now, this reality means something different than perhaps how we would understand it with our 21st century Western lenses, where we might just see him as someone just enjoys to cook versus Esau's outdoor lifestyle. But look through the lens of how tribal people would understand this. They would get something that we clearly miss. Tribal life is very much defined by clear initiation ceremonies. People go through this in-between stage and then emerge into adulthood. There's a famous sociological, anthropological study which looked at tribal life across the world and they said there is this in-between grey zone which people must pass through with which to then fully enter into the life of the tribe and the role they then play in the tribe. So what this means, the fact that someone who had not passed through, a male who had not passed through these initiation rites of passage as they're called, would often then find themselves hanging around the edge of the encampment. He's not with the warriors, he's not with the hunters, and he's not really with the women folk either. He's in this sense, this in-between space, undefined. And what this means is Jacob is living in a kind of in-between grey zone, in-between childhood and adulthood. 
He's not obviously had the courage or, or the ability to go through the stages of initiation into adulthood. And because he is in this in-between space, he's not a child, but he's not fully grown. He's in this state of immaturity. He seeks the reassuring direction of the authority of his mother. With as we read the scriptures, we can sort of pick up, there seems to be some sort of what we'd call today codependent relationship between mother and son. But there's just something about Jacob. He has this deep drive we can see within him. He has a hunger for blessing. And what is blessing? Blessing is this desire to be renewed. Yet this desire is twisted like his name without direction. And it expresses itself in sort of forms of cunning or manipulation, almost this passive aggressive expression. And he's also stuck, therefore, in another kind of gray zone. Stuck between the call on his life and the deceptive ways which he tries to fulfill that call, which end up undermining the call. Essentially, there's hunger for change, but no hope. And without hope, he deceives to get his way, living up to the foisted identity that others have given to him, confirming the bias that was put on him, and he lives out the parody. Jacob is without hope, but he's also without trust. He cannot trust God, therefore he cannot have hope. At one point, we see the codependent relationship with his mother playing out. And with his mother conspires with him to trick his blind father into giving him a blessing through literally dressing up as his brother. And you don't have to be a a therapist to see what's going on here. In a sense, this thing he puts on the skins, he's smooth in skin where his brother Esau is, again, the manly man covered in a, a, a magnificent red, hairy I was going to say covering across his body. And so he tries to trick his blind father that actually he's the brother. So he puts an animal skin on himself. But in a sense, there's something deeper going on here. This is Jacob unsatisfied with himself, unable to accept who he is and the call on his life. So he actually puts on the identity of someone else. And this is an ancient story, a man trying to, on the edge of tribal life, get an acceptance from his father but through putting an animal skin on because he's, his brother's out hunting. But also it's really contemporary. How often do we put on identities which are not our identity? And we live in a time when the world, culture, consumerism, all offer us different kinds of identities to put on. Even today through even ideologies have become a form of identity. And all around us are kinds of animal skins in which we can pretend to be whatever kind of Esau we want to be in the world in order to try and get a blessing. Jacob tries to get God's blessing through his own human power. And his actions, in a sense, are passive aggressive. Now, all of us are creating the image of God. We have this drive to, a sense, achieve our desires. We have eternity written on our hearts. We hunger for renewal. In a sense, we all long for heaven, whether we recognize that or not. But without God, we are perpetually haunted by renewal. To be haunted is to be aware of and affected by something that is ultimately ungraspable. And when we're haunted by renewal, but we don't trust, we don't have hope, we can find ourselves operating on a continuum as we try and seek a blessing. 
On one side, we can fall into just absolute passivity where we almost give up. We move into this victim identity. We're expecting other people, some sort of paternal or maternal force in the world to deliver us what we want. And a way of enacting that is to take on the power of powerlessness. Or we can go to the other extreme. We can sort of be like Esau. We can go into the world and have our aggressive way of trying to take what we think is ours, trying to enact what we see as the blessing, trying to make a renewal happen. In this sense, we turn a renewal into some sort of revolution, which is done through our human power. Or perhaps actually we're a mix of the two, where we're aggressive, but we do it in a way where we're still trying to protect ourselves and we're like Jacob, cunning, manipulative. We can use our emotions We can use different ways to try and influence others. Maybe you're one of them sticks out. Maybe you're all of them. Now, Jacob had a call on his life. Isaac, his father, had prayed for children. And God had answered Isaac's prayer and given him two sons, Jacob and Esau. Yet in Jacob, this calling lay deep down dormant and distorted. Now, also, there was not just an individual call on Jacob. His family line also had this call. God had promised his grandfather that humanity would be blessed through his line. Now, later on, Jacob will receive a new name, Israel. After wrestling with God, the Lord says to him in Genesis 32, verse 28, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. When we meet Jacob in the passage we've just read, he is haunted by the call on his life. Jacob was haunted by desire, a desire for a renewing blessing, yet unable to grasp it without God. And so in the story of Jacob, who falls asleep and dreams of a ladder linking heaven and earth up and down, which angels are moving, this illustrates to us the key themes of this series. That earth was far from being imprinted with the order of heaven, but God was at work in the world. His dreams of imprinting the world were still active and marching ahead. And in the dream, we see God reminding Jacob of his promises. In verses 14 to 15, it says this, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread out to the west, to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you whenever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you too. We see in this story, we're reminded what we saw in Genesis, that actually humans are called to be the latter between heaven and earth, bringing the imprint of heaven to the raw materials of the earth. Yet like Jacob, many of us are asleep to our true call. Renewal remains a mere dream, spectral and haunting. And Romans 12 verse 19 says this, The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And what this says is, Creation is waiting for Jacob to step into his true identity as Israel. And creation is waiting for you to step into the God, the, lo- the call that God has for your life fully and the call that has been over you, perhaps even before you were born, as other people prayed for God to move through your life. Jacob had a call, yet he had yet to step into this call. And to step into this call was to step into a process. Prophets, priests, And the people of God are made in the process. 
And that process began at Bethel for Jacob. Why? Because God came close. His presence was the turning point. His presence begins a process. God's presence invades Jacob's dream and brought it into the concreteness of reality. Edward Welch writes this. God is in heaven. We are on earth. Yet there are times when earth and heaven meet. There is a ladder that joins the two. The Lord stands above it and his emissaries move easily between the two realms. Heaven is closer to earth than we have thought. In response, Jacob took the stone that had been put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil over the top of it, on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. It was only a stone or two, but that's how temples get started. It was only a stone or two, but that's how temples get started. The temple was the house of God and from it a ladder that traversed into heaven itself. What's a stone? A stone is a building block. A stone is the part of a process. A stone is something that is taken from the natural world and shaped into something which then becomes the first brick in a foundation. The most magnificent of temples is built first with a simple stone. And so we begin to see that what God is doing is creating a process in the world and he's rebuilding and he's rebuilding us as part of that process. Peter's uh, epistle tells us that we are called to be living stones in the living temple that he's building in the world. And so humans are created to be these stones and we're created and called and commissioned to bring hope into the world. Not to just have hope as an emotional and mental state, but to embody and enact hope in the world. Now, anyone can have hope as a mental state when circumstances look up. But that's hope really just as a dream. What we're called to do is have hope as a posture and to have hope as a posture is to step into a process where we grow and enact it in the world. We're called to build hope. And when we have hope as a posture, our hope is not driven by circumstances. Instead, we begin to enact hope. This, however, is something we cannot do in our own strength. This out of the worldly hope can only come from the heavens. Now, Jesus, when he sent out the disciples who were in a process of discipleship, they had not got it all yet. They didn't get all of it until literally Jesus has resurrected from the tomb and they see him ascend to the right hand of the Father and then they receive the Spirit as we're going to celebrate next week. But Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 7, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus was hope embodied. We're called to follow him. Jesus was heaven coming near. And as we follow Jesus, we grow in hope, grow in God and embody renewal in the world. To do this, we must step into his process. And a simple equation to understand how this work is thus. This is what we can learn from Jacob's story, which speaks to us about how do we embodied hope. First of all, Jacob encounters God's presence. It begins with God's presence. Then we see Jacob from that moment go on this process. He wrestles with God and this process draws him closer to God. 
and we see a building block. At that moment, after that dream, he takes one simple stone, but that stone begins a process and that leads to renewal. So how does this work in our ordinary lives? I just want to give you four things in how this can be a process in which we step into to embody hope, to be the imprint of heaven on earth. Well, the first thing that we see Jacob doing, the first thing that we're called to do is accepting his way, accepting God's way, submitting to the will of the Father and the way of heaven. When Jesus went out, he announced that it was time to repent. Repent means metanoia, to turn around, to stop going in the direction that you're going under your own steam and actually say, God, your way is right and your will is the imprint of heaven and I'm going to follow it. And so like Jacob, we make an altar, although our altar is not made from stones, but of our lives. Each daily choice that we encounter in the circumstances that we come across every day, in the people that we encounter, in the decisions that are before us, often in the most mundane of things, when we point them towards the will of heaven done on earth, we're creating an altar. What we're saying is we're going to have no higher loves than you, God, and we're going to point everything towards you. We choose his way over all other ways. In a sense, we're cutting off the dead branches in our life which are not giving us hope. Now, once we've accepted his way, we then align with his work. We look around with the lens of heaven and we look to see where God is at work in the world, see where the Father is already at work. And when we see where the Father is already at work in the world, we then choose to join him in that work. And what happens then is, in a sense, we're grafted onto the vine. When we join God in his work, this is the easy yoke. So often exhaustion happens in life and in the Christian life when we're trying to do things in our own strength. And when we're doing religious things, we're overtaken by the spirit of religion when God's presence is not there. So we need to see where God's presence is, where is it work, and join God in that. Thirdly, once we see where God is at work, we join him in that, but we have to join him in his authority. God has called us. He has created us for a purpose. He has commissioned us to be stewards in the world. He sent out the disciples with a message to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we are called to step into his authority which is given us. We see that in the Great Commission. And once we then are aligning with his work, we're then working in his authority, we then experience the life of the Father released in us. Knitted now to the vine, we have his authority flowing through us. And we live by his call on our lives. And then once we've accepted his way, we've aligned with his work, we're working in his authority, then what happens is we then begin to be participants, partners with him as we advance his kingdom. And we experience then the power of the Father working through us. We can't do it in our own strength, but we don't actually have to. At this point, we're just operating in his strength and his authority. And when we've cut off from branches which are not giving life, we've been grafted onto the vine when we're knitted to that vine, 
and join. That's when we begin to, as John 15 says, because we have abided, begin to bear his fruit in the world. God is asking us. God's invading our dreams with his presence. He's asking us to take what are haunted dreams of renewal and actually make them concrete in the world. And every day, even at this moment, there are some things that you're worrying about. There are things that you have before you. There's stuff you may do this afternoon or tomorrow morning or whatever. And these things look like just things. They look like the raw materials of the earth. But we need to remember that you are called and commissioned by God. And when you take those things and you point them towards God, when you encounter someone, you don't just see it as a random encounter, but actually an opportunity to share the love of God with that person, the good news of his gospel. When you choose a dilemma and there's something where you know there's one way you could go here and you just have a sense of discernment and conscience that actually that's not what God wants. And maybe, you know, God's calling you over here and maybe it's going to be difficult and maybe that's going to cost you. When you make those decisions, you're actually putting a stone on the altar. So at this moment, we need to partner with God to actually begin to build altars, to accept that God has a call for us. And as we do this, there is this exciting, involving life. Jesus, after speaking to the woman at the well, has his servants come up to him. His disciples ask him what he's doing, whether he's hungry. And he says, He's not hungry because doing the will of the Father is a kind of food which truly satisfies. So let's step into that life now as we live and embody hope. Jesus, I just want to pray for anyone watching at this time who has hope, but it's like a dream which we wake from, which never seems to cross over into the world. Father, at this time when it's very easy to be disenchanted, overcome by the world, to even just be in slumber at this point of time in our face, I pray, Father, that you can wake us up. Wake us up to the call that you have on our lives. Father, we don't want to just have hope as some pleasant, schmaltzy, nostalgic thing. Father, we want to actually embody hope, be hope in the world. We want to see the world overrun with hope as the imprint of heaven redeems the world. And so we want to step into that place. We want to be a ladder between heaven and earth, which shows that heaven has drawn close. Father, I just want to pray that we get new lens for how we look at the world. I thank you for how at that moment at Bethel you reorientated Jacob's vision of the world. Do that for us now. Help us to see all that comes across our daily dashboard as actually opportunities to turn what seems like ordinary dust of mundane, normal things actually into stones in the living temple that you're building in the world. Help us to step out with courage, but courage that does not come from ourselves, but actually comes from you in the commissioning that you've given us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.